Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. It may not be a large victory, it didn't really have an impact on the war, but definitely was a small victory for them. And definitely it was an embarrassment to the Connecticut militia, which was supposed to be out there uh, protecting the coastline and watching for them. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Matthew Reardon discussing a daring loyalist raid up the Connecticut River. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by West Home Publishing, publisher of The Battles of Connecticut Farms and Springfield, 1780, by Edward G. Lengel. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today, our guest is Journal of the American Revolution contributor Matthew Reardon. Matthew's going to discuss a Loyalist raid uh, up the Connecticut River. It's a naval raid that goes awry, but it's part of a much more, I think, complicated uh, scenario, Uh, sort of the status quo in New England at the time that a lot of us overlook when we study the American Revolution. And it is this idea of the American Revolution as a civil war, a partisan guerrilla conflict. Uh, these are battles, as I've mentioned before, that do not have monuments in many cases. Uh, the, the combatants don't wear uniforms and play by the general rules of military life that we come to expect from the American Revolution. Uh, but it's a very real part of the war. And I think this episode, if you're a real... Uh, sort of uh, nuts and bolts kind of person when it comes to combat. It has a lot there. Uh, it's part uh, political. It's part uh, socioeconomic. It's part naval warfare. So there's a lot to it. Uh, and it's a really good interview. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Matthew Reardon. Matthew Reardon, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Tell us about your background. Uh, Well, I have a bachelor's degree in history and a master's in secondary teaching from Sega Heart University. Uh, My regular job is a middle school teacher in Vernon, Connecticut, and I also run uh, the New England Civil War Museum and Research Center, which is also in Vernon, Connecticut. What first drew your interest into this topic? Um, This one's particularly interesting. This one, this topic kind of found me. I mean, I never went to go looking for it. I never went looking for it. it. I was spending a lot of time in the state library in Hartford uh, going through the Governor Trumbull papers, and as I was flipping through the pages, I just kind of found this uh, the letter from the selectman of Saybrook to Governor Trumbull completely by accident. And after examining it, um, when I got home later, I was like, this is something that probably needs to get out there. It's something that's, you know, no one's ever known about this poor. This needs, this needs to get out there. What was the state of the war in 1782? Uh, well, basically the war, I mean, Yorktown is I guess is a October 1781. So that's at least a couple. So it's, the war is definitely winding down. Um, There are negotiations in Paris between the American and British uh, discussing peace. So things are winding down, but um, 
over in North America, especially in New England area, the, or at least in Connecticut, along Long Island Sound, uh, the war is continuing. Talk about fighting in Connecticut between Patriot militia and their many loyalist enemies to this point. What did that look like? Well, I mean, earlier in the war and kind of all throughout the war, any kind of uh, loyalists were chased out of Connecticut. I mean, they were hunted down. Um, if you were a loyalist sympathizer, you were hunted down and you were prosecuted for treason against the state of Connecticut. So a lot of these loyalists kind of exiled themselves over to Long Island. And they kind of they would launch um, kind of attacks against the Connecticut coastline. The Connecticut militia would launch attacks against the Long Island. So this is this what's called, I guess, the whaleboat war which is going on in Long Island Sound between the Loyalists over in British-occupied Long Island and the Patriot-friendly forces over in Connecticut. Um, each Connecticut coastal town is going to have what they call a Coast Guard company. These will come about, I think, about th- spring of eight, 1777. Um, each coastal town, like I said, will have a what's called a Coast Guard company. It's drawn from the militia. Uh, militia will agree to serve anywhere from six to eight months, and these units will patrol the coastline. Um, they're protecting Connecticut against the British regular forces, which, as you may or may not know, uh, the British will attack Connecticut in 1777. They launch a raid on Danbury. Uh, two years later, they come back again, and they launch attacks on New Haven, Fairfield, and Norwalk. And then in 1781, they're going to launch attacks on New London and Groton. Um, in between these attacks, you have the Loyalists over on Long Island, launching little nighttime raids on uh, vulnerable farms. They're coming over, they're raiding, they're collecting livestock, they're taking prisoners, they're kidnapping people at times to hold them for ransom. So it's, 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 pretty, uh, it's pretty brutal between the two coastlines. You mentioned a group called the Refugees in your article. They're going to play a big part of this. Uh, why did the Refugees desa- decide to sail up the Connecticut River in 1782, given what was going on elsewhere in the war? Uh, the refugees are the, um, I guess you can you almost call them like, they're irregular forces, they're loyalist militia, they're independent of the British Army. Uh, they operate their main bases in Fort Franklin, which is on the western end of Long Island. Um, like I said, these are the loyalist exiles. They call themselves the refugees because they see themselves as, you know, being forced to flee from uh, their homes. And they will, like I said, they'll launch attacks on the Connecticut coastline all throughout the war, particularly in the western part of the state. But for some reason, in 1782, they decide for the very first, they decide for the very first time to actually go into the interior of Connecticut. They don't up until this point. They they're just launching raids against like vulnerable coastal areas. But in 1782, they decided to kind of take it up a notch and they decided to go into the Connecticut River, which they had not yet done up until that point. Uh, we don't know why they waited till this point. Um, based on the letter, they said they went about six to eight miles upriver, which puts them in the range of uh, Pettipog, or the village of Pettipog, which was then part of Saybrook, which is now the town of Essex. Um, Essex was known for its shipbuilding. Uh, Connecticut's first warship, the Oliver Cromwell, was built there. And so based on the assumption of what Pettipog or Essex was known for, I it was it was definitely after the shipbuilding. I, I'm assuming it was after the shipbuilding that was there to uh, try to take some of the any kind of vulnerable ships that were in the river. The Connecticut River, through all throughout the war, had uh, merchant ships coming up and down. Uh, there was privateers, so it was definitely um, 
it definitely would have been an interest to the enemy. Petapog was never directly attacked. What happened that altered these plans? Um, honestly, I think that it was not really supposed to be a full attack on the town itself. Like I said, there was the shipbuilding industry, which kind of operated out of it. And if you look at Essex today, there's a bunch of coves and the shipbuilding are located in the coves away from the town. And I definitely think that if, if the sources proved correct and they only had two to three boats, they probably only had about 30 to 40 guys. I think that they didn't really want to draw attention to themselves. And if they had landed in the village, they definitely would have drawn attention to themselves and not been able to do as much damage as they did. On their way upriver, they managed to capture three vessels, at least three vessels. The sources kind of vary what they did. Um, and from one source, they actually did take prisoners at one point. I don't know how in the world they managed to do this. They managed to get into the river. They slipped past a fort in Saybrook, which was garrisoned by a small company of Coast Guards. Then they proceed upriver about six to eight miles, depending on the source. And they're completely, they do this completely undetected. And like I said, they, they depending on the source, they captured a couple of vessels with prisoners. And then as they're going to turn around about they uh, have a difficult time navigating the tides of the river. And if you look at the Connecticut mouth of the Connecticut River, especially down near Saybrook, um, the tides are really kind of odd. Uh, the sandbars are really deceptive. So even though they were able to take uh, three vessels with prisoners, they were not able to get away with them. They actually had to uh, leave, I think, most of their vessels behind. At one point, they actually nailed the prisoners into the cabin of one of the ships and kind of just left it there. Um, down near on the route back, they did pass a ferry crossing site, which they had passed on the way up. Um, the, uh, let's see, the Stonington, no, sorry, not Stonington, uh, Saybrook Lime Ferry. And they did take, they did commandeer the ferry boat. So my assumption is that they, whatever, while they couldn't get the ships off, uh, whatever plunder was on the ships, any kind of naval stores, stores, they probably load on a smaller boat so they can get them out out of the, um, they could take it back to Long Island. Where did the refugees go after the raid? Um, again, speculating they, based on other refugee type attacks, they probably had one or more vessels waiting for them somewhere near the mouth of the Connecticut River. I find it hard to believe they would have been able to row after, what, 12 miles or so. They would have been able to have the endurance or strength to get back to Long Island safely. So I'm guessing that they, like they said, they had a, they had a vessel waiting for them. And uh, that vessel probably took on whatever they captured and then sailed them back to uh, Fort Franklin. You deem this raid to be a success. You say so in your article. What brought you to that conclusion? Well, I think it's pretty remarkable that they were, again, they were able to get into the river, up the river, took vessels, took uh, prisoners, and somehow remained completely undetected. Uh, didn't fire a shot. As far as I know, we didn't suffer any casualties. And that they were able to bring the vessels back down and at least escape back to Long Island with some sort of, what's the phrase I'm looking for, some kind of, you know, plunder, some kind of uh, captured stores. That's pretty remarkable, I think. And I think that, I think that's probably why I credit it. It may not be a large victory. It didn't really have an impact on the war, but definitely was a small victory for them. And definitely it was an embarrassment to the Connecticut militia, which was supposed to be out there, uh, protecting the coastline and watching for them. What does this event reveal to us about the larger revolutionary era? 
I mean, it definitely, I mean, one thing I've learned as I study the Revolutionary War period, especially in Connecticut, there's so much which remains untold. There's so many things that people just don't have any clue about. Even the people in Connecticut really don't know a lot about. And the war was very vicious. It was very personal. Um, I think like you alluded before, it had kind of undertones of a civil war. I mean, neighbors went against neighbors, families against families. And yeah, I think that's, I mean, the, the fighting definitely did not end at Yorktown. I mean, it continued along, like I said, the Connecticut coastline. It's actually going to continue for about another month post um, the raid on Pettipog or Essex. There's actually going to be one more minor altercation with casualties about a month later in East Guilford, which is today Madison. Matthew Reardon, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.